In today's episode, I'm interviewing Patrick from London. Patrick managed to raise his income from eighteen thousand to one hundred and forty in a matter of five years, which obviously is nuts. And we're gonna figure out how he managed to do so. At the same time, we're gonna talk about his investing journey and the company started to educate football players on uh, financial education and lots more. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Financial Independence Europe podcast, where we interview people from all 44 European countries, all of them, about optimizing your life, geo-arbitrage, and making the most of your money. This was your hosts, Alvar, Erminta, and Matthias. So hello, welcome everybody. Welcome back again to another podcast episode of the Financial Independence Europe podcast. Today I've got Patrick with me. Hey, Patrick. Hey, how you doing? Good stuff, Patrick. So today we're going to something actually I very much always like, talking about success stories and case stories at the same time. So Patrick, can you just give the audience a very quick rundown of where you are about and what brought you to the financial independence world? Yeah, sure. So I'm originally Canadian, but me and my partner, who's of Polish heritage, uh, met here in London, and that's where we currently live. And for the last five years, I was working for Manchester United in their sponsorship department. But now I've started my own side hustle, which I'm sure we'll get to in a little bit. Uh, And my sort of entry into the world of financial independence or FIRE happened about four years ago. I was pretty actually terrible with my own personal finances. Uh, I wasn't managing anything. I was check to check, no savings, no investments. Uh, And I remember one specific story, which happened with my fiance now, but new girlfriend at the time, we were off to one of my best friend's weddings. And it was towards the end of the month. And I was sort of a little bit tight on cash. And she said, let's stop by the cash machine and get a gift, a wedding gift, take out some cash and, and give it to your friend as a, as a gift. And I kind of said, oh, you know, it's a bit tight, end of the month. She's like, no problem. Just borrow a bit from your savings, replace it in three days when you get paid. And my response was, what savings? And she kind of looked very, very shocked. Uh, and that sort of launched us into a whole conversation, opening up about money. Uh, and that was sort of the beginning to, to get my butt into gear and actually really start uh, educating myself around personal finance. So that was sort of the embarrassing story that was the catalyst to dive in. And then I started getting lost down the rabbit hole of Mr. Money Mustache and and all the classic uh, personal finance blogs and Choose FI podcast. And then eventually arrived on your podcast as well. For for someone in Europe, it was fantastic uh, to understand a little bit more about the challenges and opportunities that other people in Europe around financial independence were, were facing. Awesome one. Do you have any particular challenges being Canadian and living in the UK and kind of like mixing those two together? So I'm actually quite fortunate in the sense that my father was from the UK, born in London. So I actually have dual passports. So I have a a British passport and a Canadian passport. So for me, everything has been actually relatively seamless. I've almost cut off most of my, uh, I'm actually a non-resident in Canada now. So I've kind of uh, left all of that behind and, and basically my net worth and finances is all focused here in the UK, nothing in Canada. So I kind of removed that. Uh, complication altogether because I think the benefits financially here in the UK are a lot stronger than the ones in Canada, specifically the sort of tax-free stuff. I think the tax-free allowance in Canada for investing is 5000 per year, whereas in here in the UK, it's 20000 per year. So there's just a bit more benefits of, of tax-free investing here in the UK, which is why I decided to keep sort of my financial center or financial hub here in the UK. 
Nice one. Yeah, I can definitely agree with the tax advantages we've got in the UK are really unbeatable from everything I've seen within Europe. Uh, I haven't come across anything that comes close to it, which is good for us, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) So like from there, I would say, let's jump over kind of like to your financial independence um, journey. Uh, So obviously, you know, that was your uh, wow moment. And now let's go and get started. But from there, you know, obviously you moved from um, Canada to the UK, to London, you started a job and in your email, you said something extremely crazy. You managed to go from 18,000 to 140 annually. How did you, how did you do that? <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy to think about it when I look back. And it was completely unintentional. It was really just a bunch of actions that I took. And upon reflecting, you know, how I got there, I realized that I just did a, a few things unconsciously that actually all added up to really accelerate that growth of income. So if that's okay with you, kind of walk you through the four, four steps that I took that, that really accelerated that process. Please go for it. I'm curious. <laughs> so the first thing that I did was I actually found the gold standard company in my industry. That was step number one. So for me, I worked in sports sponsorship and the gold standard company, uh, the Goldman Sachs of my industry, if you will, uh, was Manchester United. So what I did was I took a one-year MBA, a football MBA from the University of Liverpool, which I didn't even know existed, uh, which is sort of a half traditional MBA. And then half the course was focused on how that relates to football. So I did something sort of very specific to stand out and put myself at the front of the queue for internships. And then at the same time, I was you know, focusing on doing really well in my MBA and then doing a lot of networking events and meeting recruiters within the sports space, uh, connecting with anyone who had a connection to Manchester United so I really did everything that I could to basically get my foot in the door of a gold standard company in my industry. So that was step number one. And then the second one was once I got my foot in the door, how could I make it sort of not an internship, but permanent? So when I joined, there was a pool of about six interns. I was one of them. And again, I wanted to stand out and get the one permanent role that was available at the end of the internship. So I did this basically in two ways. One is the standard way. I just kind of you know, made sure I was uh, really hardworking and always volunteering for certain tasks and putting myself forward. That's kind of the main thing that most people think of when they, they want to win sort of that internship spot. But I think almost more importantly was the second thing that I did, which is I never missed out on an opportunity to connect with the team outside of the office. So I never missed a pub, pub trip. I always went to the weekly football match that the company had. I really did everything I could outside of the office to build a connection with my, you know, who would be my future colleagues. And so when the internship came to an end and the quality of my work and my attitude mixed with the integration into the team socially, it really did put me at the front of the line. And I was fortunate enough to get uh, a permanent role at Manchester United. So that was sort of step number two, stand out from the crowd and get a permanent role. So then once your foot's in the door, you've got the permanent role. And I worked there for about two years at Manchester United. And after the two-year period, the step number three was I started building relationship with recruiters and headhunters. Because after two years of experience with Man United on the belt being the gold standard company, I started attracting a lot of attention on LinkedIn from recruiters who were reaching out. 
And so what I did was I built relationships with about three or four headhunters in my field by taking them all to lunch. Uh, and this was actually really easy to arrange because headhunters are financially incentivized or rewarded for finding you a new job. Plus, they were getting a free lunch out of it. I mean, you know, who's going to say no to that? So on top of that, because I had Man United on my CV, I was kind of a, a higher value commodity. They knew that I would be able to demand a higher salary from companies, which in turn meant more money in their pocket as well. So the key takeaway from that step really was to financially incentivize others to feed me higher paying jobs on a regular basis. So that was the third step. And then finally, the, the sort of fourth step to everything was really becoming sort of an interviewing ninja and learning your uh, market value. So I was getting these job opportunities sent to me now by recruiters. And so I would take the best opportunities and actually go and interview for them, even if I had no real big intention of taking that job. So what it started doing, I started really crushing interviews because I walked in there so relaxed because I didn't actually care if I got the job or not, right? It just took all the pressure off a traditional interview and allowed you to kind of be yourself and really shine and be confident because there were no consequences or risks for them saying no or rejecting you. So that, that was a super powerful thing. I just got really good at, at practicing the interview techniques. Now, I got to put a huge caveat here, which is don't do so many of these interviews that makes the recruiters upset that they're doing all this work for you and getting you the interviews for you just to turn down uh, all these jobs because it will work against you. Just pick the top ones. You know, I, I think I did one every couple of months. And I actually spoke to the recruiters as well saying, you know, just fire them over on email. If I like the look of them, I'll, I'll, I'll take the interview. It just made it really a little amount of work as possible for the recruiters to send me those job offers over. So started getting really good at the interviews, but also by getting offers from other companies, I started to understand my market value in the, the, the world of sports sponsorship. You know, was the salary that I was currently on good? Was it average or was it poor? Because I would start getting offers. And then the final thing, which I think really made a difference uh, was I would always tell the recruiters that I was on about 20,000 pounds more than I actually was. So when I was able to crush the interviews and the company would offer me uh, a position, they knew what my salary was, which was inflated a little by me, but they knew they had to beat that in order to attract me from the other company. So I wasn't sort of jumping around all the time. I probably made two to three move, two, two moves in that five-year period. But it also could allow you to go back to your current employer and negotiate your own salary with them, knowing that other people are after you. So combined all those four things together is a really powerful way to kind of upsell yourself uh, and really ramp up your income trajectory over your career. Wow. <laughs> so one thing I very much love is when you said now, you didn't have a very big intention to actually get a job for some of the interviews you went into. Just went in, did a job, practiced, but pretty much used them as guinea pigs almost and got better at the craft of interviewing. I love that one because what's the be what is a better area to practice than with actual real interviews? And you could start testing stuff as well. It was quite fun. Like 
testing certain questions you would ask the employer, like which ones really resonated and landed and which ones were just regular questions that don't make you stand out really. Um, so yeah, it got you just to, you could have a, almost fun with it as opposed to feeling nervous going in. You just tr- test stuff that you think might work. Uh, sometimes it did, sometimes it didn't, but again, there was no risk to it, right? No, heck yeah. And I, I guess at the same time, you know, if you look at your approach, and how this links with financial independence, because most of us still simply need a job to actually either get to our number or accumulate the cash we need or build a lifestyle we want to. So becoming extremely good at the interviewing process, at getting the jobs, at getting the raises, it's essential. You can be as good as you want to at your job, but it's going to be useless in the end if you actually want to get to the income needed or the lifestyle needed you're after. That's a very good point. And for us, like, you know, in financial independence, you know, the two pillars are, you know, limit or reduce your expenses and grow your income. And if you do those two things simultaneously, you can really accelerate uh, your path to or whatever your end number is for, for financial independence. Exactly. And also talking about income in that case. So I assume when you started out as the intern, you were an 18K, but like, can you kind of like talk us through the progression of your income over these years? Because the jumps, you know, they sound good. But like, how was it looking like between jobs and between kind of like internal raises? You mean, how did the sort of salaries grow at each exactly. stage? Yes. Right. So I would probably say they almost each time I got either a promotion within the company I was working for or sort of a boost in income by finding a new company to work for, it almost, it almost roughly doubled each time. So when I started at the internship on 18, Uh, the next company that I moved to was about 36, 35, 36, which I think is pretty standard, uh, the median salary for London. And then from there, the next one, again, sort of doubled around the the area of sort of 70, 75 plus other kind of incentives. And then the final one that I did take uh, again, doubled. So it it moved up to that 140 bracket. As, As I said, I think that was really helped by that um, very white lie, I suppose you might call it, of, of inflating my own my own value, and and that's I think been a super way, super powerful way to uh, make those leaps and bounds. But essentially, it kind of it almost doubled each time I either got a promotion or found a new company to work for. Love it. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's definitely out of the ordinary if it comes to jumping between jobs and getting those kinds of raises, even in London. Um, and I, I think this, the, sorry, the, the final thing I wanted to say, I think there's a lot of stigma around moving jobs too quickly because people think, uh, oh, I look unstable or it doesn't read right in my CV. And I think there's a fine line, right? You don't want to be the person every three months or two months jumping around from one company to another. I, I get that. But I think the idea of being sort of my parents' generation of this 10-year, 20-year, 30-year company man or woman, I think is, is, is dying. And, and especially a lot of the sort of senior executives that I would meet at Manchester United, most of them would move companies every two or three years. I just don't think it has the same stigma that maybe it once used to. I would agree. And I also would still say it's in the interest of the business to have the best possible person in the job. And if after two, three years, you've either learned the ropes of the job or a better offer comes along, it's in both parties' interest to move on in those cases. So now, agree. And you kind of have to in nowadays world, if you don't move on, if you don't change, or at least internally make jumps, 
you're never going to get ahead of what you actually want to accomplish. So what I'm also curious about at the same time, because you, it sounds like you've had this incredible quick career, putting all this effort into it, but what actually happened to you know your lifestyle? Did you inflate it proportionally with your income? As London, we all know what you can do in London, what you can spend. How did that go? So the answer is yes. Before I found financial independence, I got caught in that trap of lifestyle inflation. Uh, I remember it was around the time when I was got, went from 35,000 to 70,000. That was the jump that kind of made it from uh, an average lifestyle to now affording a bit nicer and luxuries. And for the time that I spent on 18K, which anyone who lives in London might be like, well, how do you, on earth do you even survive on um, 18K in London? It was tough. So when I finally got that sort of bump to 70, I thought, oh, wow, I deserve you know, nicer wine. I deserve the nicer vacations. I deserve a nicer apartment. And so my spending in those stages of my career actually increased with my promotions. So I wasn't getting ahead financially uh, as much as I wanted to. But luckily, right around the time that I made that jump uh, from to 70K a year, that was the point where my girlfriend and I had that incident. And that was the, the moment where I started to educate myself and, and limit my expenses to make sure that I had extra income every, at the end of every month to save and then to first get out of debt, then save, and then start investing. So I learned that lesson, not right away, but at the right moment in my career to actually uh, start really getting ahead and, and saving for the future. And that on itself is fine, right? And actually, I got one question more regarding number-wise, but I would first like to ask, from that period, is there anything still remaining right now you're spending money on during your you know, crazy spending period you just enjoyed so much you didn't want to let go of? There is one thing that I do have uh, that, I, that is very expensive that I do like to spend money on, which is taking business class flights. Um, I kind of got used to them. I was fortunate enough that my company paid for long haul business class flights when I was working and the experience of doing that versus economy, I mean, it was, was almost worth it. If it's a flight that's within Europe under three hours, I'll just get the, the basic flight, the cheapest one I can find. It really doesn't matter to me. But when you start going on the long haul ones, it made a huge difference. The experience was great. It wasn't always waiting to get to the destination that was exciting. Like the whole travel there was exciting and fun. Um, and you also arrived at the location feeling fresh and, and ready to go. So I, I think that's the one thing that I've still kept that is uh, sort of that expense luxury that I do like to do. But uh, yeah, I've definitely started rethinking other areas of my life. I, I follow, I don't know if you know Remit Sethi yes. in the US. Uh, I'll teach you to be rich. Uh, he has this great principle of, you know, money dials, which is identifying the areas in life that you really do enjoy spending on and spending there, but then mercilessly cutting the areas of your life where you don't enjoy spending. So you can actually use that money that you're sort of wasting essentially on things you don't care about to put it more towards things that you do. So that's the one thing that's stuck with me. <laughs> I think it's totally fair. And to be very honest, I've never flown business class before in my life. That's, um, uh, get a, like Since I moved to the UK, I'm using all the travel credit cards over here, accumulating a ton of points. So hopefully when all this craziness is over, I will have the opportunity. Oh, yeah. One really quick uh, tip that, that I might give is 
yeah, the travel credit cards, obviously they, they do their thing and they're, they're really important. We use them as well to, to gain points. But the other thing I noticed, I was just goofing around the other day because I love searching for cheap business class flights. I love searching for cheap business class flights. And I found actually when I went from London to South Africa business, it was around 2,500, almost 3,000 pounds to do. But I found that almost exact same flight from Oslo to London to South Africa for a thousand pounds, 100 business class by just going from a different sort of hub from within Europe. So actually, it was 40 or 50 pounds. You could fly to Oslo uh, in the morning for the day, enjoy that town for the day. And then in the evening, you get your flight back to London, three-hour layover. But since you're in business class, you get the nice lounge, you can have a drink, you can have dinner, and then a flight long haul to South Africa business class for what I would call premium economy prices. So there's there's all kinds of cool uh, little hacks that you can do to kind of find business class experiences without the huge price tag. Nice one. Yeah, I'm definitely still more of the budget traveler approach. Uh, while we're on the topic, I'll keep it very brief, but one website I recently discovered was kiwi.com, which like, you know how Skyscanner, sometimes it combines one-way flights to get to a certain destination. Kiwi.com does it in a bit more of an unusual way um, and links flights together that normally wouldn't be linked together, which creates sometimes very unique uh, flight plans, but it does come with sometimes big discounts. Um, you can go for them. Um, I found them very intriguing. And the second point, uh, this will probably only be of value for the next weeks or months or so. But something my girlfriend mentioned is that if you would book tickets, for example, with Ryan or EasyJet, and they get cancelled, they have to refund them. Uh, but they give default refunds, not necessarily related to the flight you booked, but an actual you know, you can replace this with any flight you want to. So in the case you would book a flight for say, for example, 20 euro one way to Berlin, um, and it would in the event would be cancelled, then you would get a refund for a flight. You could book a far more expensive flight at another uh, portion of the year. And again, not 100% sure if this still applies and it's different for every country and rule but I found out a very interesting thing. We haven't done it ourselves yet, but we'll uh, investigate it. And maybe for anybody, it still can be still of value as a way of, we were taking pretty much book a flight for 20 euro, have it cancelled. And then during Christmas, when we go home, flights tend to be like 10 times the price, use that voucher return. But at the same time, we might not even be able to fly. Uh, so yeah, we'll see how it goes. So Patrick, what I also wanted to ask in terms of actual your progress to financial independence, we all know London is an expensive city and even on a very great income, it can be extremely hard to save a lot. Like if you look kind of like at the progress you guys have made over the last years, um, yeah, how did you do it if we're looking at kind of like saving vehicles, saving rates, and how far are you along the journey right now? So yeah, there's a lot in there to unpack. So essentially, we're about 40% of the way to financial independence. And we've done a couple things because you're right, London is expensive and it can be challenging in an expensive city to get to financial independence. So we've done a few things that have hopefully uh, accelerated our path to the end. So the first thing is, uh, I think what we want to do when we reach financial independence is not here in London. It's in a lower cost of living city. So my partner has Polish heritage and we visit Poland a lot. She has family there. I think that's one place that we would like to trial our sort of post-financial independence life 
because we believe the quality of life is high, but the cost compared to London is relatively low. So that was a way to just drag the finish line a lot closer to us because you just genuinely need less to survive in a place like Poland than you do London. So that was the first thing, just bring the finish line closer for, by geographic arbitrage. That's number one. And then number two, I think what has been super powerful for us is we've always lived on the philosophy, once we discovered financial independence, to try and live off of one person's salary and bank the other person's. Now, depending on where you live and what your income is, that can be challenging to do. But it's, it's a really great system because, yes, it allows you to stockpile and save very, very quickly, but also it prevents you from finding yourself in a situation, maybe one person loses their job or COVID is probably a great example of, you know, people being furloughed or reduction of salary, things like that. You can really build a system that, yeah, uh, just insulates yourself from financial disaster, really, because you are building a cash cushion so quickly and you you are being sensible with the way that you live. Now, on top of that, you don't want to sort of do nothing. You, you want to have a lifestyle while you're reaching the goal of FI. So you want to make sure that you strike that balance of, yep, saving a lot and your savings rate really, really high. But also at the same time, you are, you know, living uh, a life in the meantime as well. So we really did try and save, you know, we roughly have earned different amounts in our career, but um, we've roughly tried to save 50% of the household total income uh, as a general rule of thumb. And that's been a, a great, great system for us. Perfect. And so obviously you've been saving all this money, but what did you actually do with it? Did you straight up from the bed actually go to Vanguard and invest directly with them? Or did you go stock picking and make massive mistakes? Kind of how was your financial investment journey from like a learning perspective going? So I was really fortunate that I started my sort of career and internship in, in Manchester United in London when I was 26. Like I was quite an old uh, intern, like jumping into the corporate world quite kind of, I felt a little bit late. So I actually avoided a lot of things like buying a house, buying a car, not because I was sort of smart about it or smart with my money. It was just because I simply couldn't afford to do it. So that was kind of helpful, avoiding those traps before I learned and understand the consequences of huge mortgage and, and how cars are a pretty bad financial investment. We do need them sometimes, but they're a bad financial investment. So I was able to avoid a lot of pitfalls early by accident. And then once I started to educate myself on financial independence, we really did sort of the, the pillars quickly. I just knocked out fifteen or $20,000 of um, credit card and student debt I had from Canada. And earning in pounds allowed me to do that really quite quickly. So that was helpful, the currency exchange. So we knocked out debt. I knocked out debt first. Then we built up that 12 months of cash cushion. Uh, and then once we progressed there, we went straight into an index fund strategy. So for us, it was Vanguard. It is... ETFs, it is S&P 500 and, and total US stock markets. That's really, we have a sort of basically 100% equities holding uh, because we realize that we are in our investing journey, we have a long horizon ahead of us. So we're okay and we feel comfortable taking the risk of being in 100% equities, but we are pretty much all index funds. So uh, yeah, I'm a huge fan of Vanguard. That's where I keep my index fund. And I was super happy a few months ago that they launched, launched their pensions as well. So I'm just in the process of transferring my pension 
hot into Vanguard as well. So that can just be one central hub where we have our investments and we have our pensions. Same story over here. And just for the audience quickly, uh, I believe um, the UK is the only country in Europe where you can invest directly with Vanguard, open funds up with them, which is a big advantage. I'm doing the exact same right now myself. I already, I have got a brokerage account with them, but I'm moving all my pension plans I've got from several employers over to them, merging them into one plan. I once was asked at one of our uh, local meetups here from Edinburgh by somebody who said, well, but they actually aren't the cheapest providers. So why do you bother going with them? They're not the cheapest in terms of performance and cost. And I really came back to that saying, well, I think Vanguard as a provider is just very stable. And if I had to pick one provider to throw all my money in, it would be Vanguard. It doesn't mean I will solely go for Vanguard on the long run, but at this moment, yeah, I don't know how this is for yourself, Patrick, but I have, yeah, from their structure and the way you actually own the equities in there and the company through the ETF you own, that has a lot of value to me. Yeah, I think the one big drawback that people say about Vanguard is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm very, very certain that they only have Vanguard funds, right? They don't have thousands and thousands of different options uh, of other companies. But for me personally, like I love Vanguard. I love what they're all about. So I really didn't need anything else. So um, I'm super happy with, with the platform itself. But I know for others who like different products that they can dabble into, maybe they're not 100% index investors. I, I get it. Having a, having a different provider is just making sure that you do keep those costs low because in investing... It's literally the only thing we can actually control, which is the fees that we pay uh, versus the performance of our, our portfolio. We don't have too, too much control on, on which stocks rise or which index funds rise or fall. Uh, the fees is what we can control. So I just like Vanguard from that perspective, but I understand why people look at, at different options as well. And just to make a quick point about the pensions as well, I don't know if this really works for everyone. But I know when I started, when I left the corporate world and now starting to work for myself, creating a SIP, which is, you know, a self-invested pension plan versus a company pension, it was really great because I can do that SIP within Vanguard. And if I ever do go back to sort of more traditional job where they have a company pension, what I would probably do is actually ask the HR team if they're willing to contribute my, the company pension instead of into the company pension, and then you have seven different pensions for the seven companies you worked for, and it's all confusing, I would probably ask them if they would mind doing my pension directly into my SIP, into my Vanguard. I know some employers, people I've spoken to, some employers are saying, that's too much paperwork, it's too much hassle, like we just do what the company standard is. But it's worth asking in case you might have a bit of a progressive company uh, who would be willing. So basically what that allows you, the SIP follows you around with your career, instead of having five or six different pension pots that you have to accumulate. And kind of like from, I cannot comment from like a French or Spanish perspective, but I can comment from a German and Dutch perspective. I know there in the Netherlands, we, there's a similar system available, not as beneficial, but you are able to open up a pension plan on your own um, through providers. There are not as many out there in the Netherlands and you can only invest, I believe, I don't know the exact numbers, but for most people, it comes down to like two or three K a year uh, in like normal, regular jobs. And you actually, one thing I very much like about it is that you control the investments yourself. If you go with an employer, because this I do know from most European countries, 
your employer will allow you to invest through a company or through a government uh, investment fund, and they will pick the funds for you. Sometimes you have some options to change them up, but often very limited. And even with my own fund, when I um, first signed up for the pension plan I'm right now, they put me in the most conservative plan possible with like 40% equities, 40% bonds, and 20% cash equivalents. Um, well, I very quickly changed it up. Um, <laughs> and the fact that you actually, some, if you have the option in there, uh, wherever you go, just asking your provider, you know, how are you investing? And can you even adjust it in the slightest yourself? And let's say they go extremely conservative on your behalf and you cannot change it. Be more risky yourself, balance it out. In the end, it's still um, a total portfolio. It's something I've recently been thinking about. Yeah, so that's a that's a great point. Is I one of my employers? I was so limited in the pension options. I had literally ten funds to pick from. That was it. And as you say, there was there was just very little flexibility of setting my own aggressive or or conservative uh, strategy. So that was why I opted. Like uh, that's why I do love the SIP because you are in total control of which funds, how aggressive, and the fees that you pay. Perfect. Yeah. And I guess that's also, we don't have to make it any more complicated than needed if it comes to managing your own finances, but these little tweaks, uh, you know, and the main one you're referring to yourself, the cost, the main one we can control ourselves. If we just, if we do a few things right with that, we're good to go. But yeah, anyway, Patrick. So I honestly, that's as kind of like a case study story. It's amazing because I think many people can draw lessons out of how you've been able to do this. First, obviously, get a great salary, work yourself up to that. But at the same time, because that's one thing I want, was wondering about, if you would want to accomplish fire in London, how much longer would it take versus Poland? That's a good question. I know when we calculated uh, how far we were away from fire in Poland, it was about 5.7 years. Now, I don't know the exact number of years it would have taken in London because we didn't want to calculate that because we knew it would be <laughs> way longer. But I, I, I could only imagine that it would be double or more. Um, again, it's, it's hard to put an exact pinpoint on it, but I think it would definitely have been over 10 years, I, I would have I I said, said. And just for, from a perspective point of view, uh, what do you guys roughly estimate your cost of living in Poland will be? Yeah, so we've had a look at this, and I think we're thinking of two minds because we don't really want to stop working. We're both quite self-driven, and we want to continue making an income, but actually doing it on our own terms, projects we care about, and caring less about the salary number. Um, so I think calculating, you know, we would be able to very much live comfortably on uh, maybe 30, 35,000 pounds. Now, that's not to say that that's the exact amount we want forever to live on. We do probably want to increase that income. But as I said, we would be allowed to do that on our own terms and build our own side hustles and passion projects to add to that. But I think I genuinely, if you wanted to, if you wanted to just get by and survive, I really think you could do it on 20,000 pounds. 35 would give you sort of a, a lifestyle that we're probably more used to. Uh, so those are kind of the the, the two angles, the 20,000 kind of at a bare minimum, and then 35,000 pounds per year, uh, if you wanted a bit more you know, luxurious lifestyle, I, I guess I would say. Gotcha. And I can second that from a similar numbers I've heard from other people who've either moved over or have been living in Poland natively their entire lives. And I guess as a local, you could easily obviously do it for five, 600 pounds or euros a month um, in many cities or as a single person. but 
pretty simply said, if you move in as an immigrant, there will be extra costs involved with that. Simple things you cannot do if you don't speak the local language. I mean, you having a Polish partner probably might make these things a lot easier. Um, but there is arranging insurance, finding the cheapest house, blah, blah, blah. Having to go home a couple of times a year. These things, I think, just come inherently with moving overseas or moving to another country. At least that's what I know for myself. Like wherever I go, there will always be components having to return to Germany and Netherlands a couple of times a year. And it will just simply cost come with a certain cost. And that's part that's something I would never want to give up. And that will simply be part of the fight plan. Yeah, and we're definitely in the process of really educating ourselves on like, okay, if we do make the move, what are the tax implications? We we have a lot of homework to do in terms of how it'll impact our our finances here in the UK. But I really think, especially with COVID and everything that's happening, people are really embracing this idea of remote working. And if you can sort of set up a base in uh, Eastern Europe or, or certain countries. Uh, the cost of living is low, but you're earning a strong currency, whether it's the dollar or the pound or, or the euro. Um, yeah, you can you can sort of have a really, really high standard of life uh, versus living in an expensive city. So almost for Cloud Poland is obviously using the Schlotty, right, uh, as its currency. And I'm not sure uh, if they're going to move over to the euro anytime soon. But like from that perspective, that currency could jump around massively as well against the pound which could change up your numbers by like now easily a variation of 20%, give, give or take any moment. Yeah, exactly. Right now, I think it's five. Um, one British pound is five zlotte, some roughly like that. I mean, don't quote me. <laughs> uh, but we kind of have that number as a, as a general conversion rate. So uh, yeah, you can easily get a, a flat in the downtown of Throtswav, uh, where my partner's from for, you know, four, five, six hundred pounds per month. Yeah, no problem. That's definitely not bad. Okay, so from that story, let's uh, jump into uh, kind of like, you know, one thing I found very fascinating about your email and kind of like one thing that's even more unique about yourself because you decided to let go of this job of 140,000 a year and go and pursue your passion project and own business. Can you tell us a little bit about that and like what made you decide to give up you know, such a great salary and start on your own? Yeah, so that's one of the powerful things I think about of the path to fire. I think a lot of people think about, oh, life will be great when I reach the finish line. But each, each time your sort of net worth goes up and you get yourself more financial security, it opens up more options in your life. It just allows you to be bolder and, you know, take more chances or maybe more risks because you have the financial security behind you. And so I always say that money doesn't buy you happiness, it buys you options. And that's very much what that's been able to do for us. And so I came to a point in my career where I sort of accomplished everything I wanted to in the world of football and sports sponsorships. Um, and I was really basically looking for a new challenge. But also at the same time, I realized that that higher salary in that corporate life had taken out the most valuable resource in my life, which is time. And it, the job was so consuming of my time and my energy that I wanted more of that back. So that's why I kind of decided to, uh, which is a hard thing to do for a salary that size, especially when you're trying to reach financial independence. But we were at a stage where uh, financially and just the, the, the setup that we had for me to take a, a step back and actually pursue a side project. So what I decided to do was I created the Football Finance Academy. So 
basically what we do is we educate professional footballers on how to manage their personal finances uh, so that they can build wealth from the start of their career instead of ending up in bankruptcy, which we know a lot of pro athletes um, do in history. So we're really looking to educate the players early on before they reach that stage of a huge inflated salary. So they have the basic financial principles in place to really make the most of that big income that they're earning. Nice one. And also the fact, you know, you've learned a lot yourself and now you're converting it into business plus helping so many people actually need it. And yeah, now obviously kudos for you for going for that and taking the risk because if I, I mean, I am most definitely not on 140,000 a year and I would find it pretty mentally difficult to like having accomplished something. So, I mean, it's still, it's just money in the end, but it is a lot to give that up. I think in my head, what there's a couple of things that made this easier because you're right. Anyone starting their own company or their own business or their own side hustle, it is a risk that you're taking. Absolutely. It can be successful or, you know, it can fail. Absolutely. But I think what I proved to myself is that the corporate world will always be there. You know, especially if you've worked up, you know, worked in a gold standard company, you've progressed yourself, you've learned a lot, you've developed yourself. Like, I think you can always go back. That was my, that was the philosophy in my head that if this doesn't work out in a certain timeline I've given myself, you can always return. And then on top of that, again, going back to living off of one person's salary, it's just extended the runway of my entrepreneurial journey where it's not about making money tomorrow in order to pay for rent and food. You give yourself just enough time to test your idea, to tweak it or, you know, pivot if you need to, because the market's telling you something different. Um, I think so many small businesses and entrepreneurs fail because they don't give themselves enough time to be successful because there's a lot of, you know, people have expenses in their life. They need to put a roof over their head. They need to feed themselves, you know, and uh, just this creating a system to allow you a longer runway has been very healthy in the process to give me the best shot and the best opportunity to make this side business a success. And I think that's an amazing finishing note of the episode. Wow. <laughs> Thank you so much for your story. Um, just quickly asking, if anybody wants to learn more about you, chat to you, ask for some advice, how can they reach you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we do at the Football Finance Academy, we work one-on-one -on -one with pro athletes and, and youth football players to help them level up their financial IQ. But I also work with non-athletes as well. So if anyone wants to connect with me and go through the personal finance bodyguard program that we've created, uh, they can reach out at patrickben.com. Or we also do a lot of free stuff, free content as well on YouTube and Instagram at patrickben sort of helping young professionals master their money so they can build their best life. My goal is to help them optimize, you know, use money as a tool uh, to optimize every area of their life to make sure it brings them maximum joy. So yeah, lots of different ways to connect. I'd love to hear from people and, and help any way I can. Perfect. Patrick, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Love the podcast and keep doing what you're doing. Hey, Matthias, do you think there are no enough financial independence Facebook groups yet? Yes, there's definitely a shortage in financial independence Facebook groups. That's why we want to create another one. And the real reason is that we want to get some feedback on our episodes to have a conversation with our listeners, um, to follow on the topics. And you might also have some questions around our content. 
gotcha. And also, we've been talking with more of you guys at meetups, on Reddit, in Facebook groups, the Fire Europe retreat, obviously, we organized. And this is, in the end, the main reason why we started the whole podcast project to talk to guys like you, uh, learn more from you, case studies, answer questions, and like hopefully all grow and learn from that together in the end and become stronger, smarter, and hopefully also richer people. So, you know, Matthias, say I'm interested in this. Where do I find this Facebook group? Yeah, just go to your Facebook app and type in FI Europe podcast or just click in our show notes. There's a link for the Facebook group or go to our website. There's also a link. So, yeah, just type in FI Europe podcast. See you in the group. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. We hope you learned something new and enjoyed the show. You can support us by doing this. Subscribing through your favorite podcast program and leaving us a review. Following us on Instagram and Twitter at Financial Independence Europe. Sending us an email with questions and feedback. We would love to hear from you. All the mentioned articles, books and cool resources can be found in the show notes at financial-independence.eu. Thank you for listening and see you next time.